Hello, I'm Laura Ellsworth, welcoming you to Prairie Doc Radio. This is a program of the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3 founded by Rick and Joni Holm. We are here to answer your medical questions, so give us a call at 605-692-1430. 605-692-1430. With us today is Dr. Kelly Evans to answer our medical questions. Dr. Evans' specialty is internal medicine. She works with the Avera Medical Group Brookings and volunteers as part of the Prairie Doc team of physicians. Good morning, Dr. Evans. Good morning, Laura. Thanks for being here this morning. Happy to be here. We have a fun Prairie Doc topic this week. I'm excited to yeah, talk about Yeah, the this. topic yes. is the, the journey to medicine, uh-huh. which is, as I was thinking about that this morning, of course, unique for every individual, but there are some milestones, some stopping points, some hurdles along the way that everyone needs to go through on their journey to becoming a doctor. So it'll be fun to kind of dive into those and talk about those. Dr. Evans, when when and how did you decide you Ooh. wanted to become a doctor? Yeah, so I love this part. Of, something that we get to do as Prairie Docs mm-hmm. is every week before the TV show, um, you know, our viewers may or may not know this, we have a lot of people that help us put on the show. And some of those people are actually sort of pre-medical or pre-professional students. Um, they have a, it's a student group called the Prairie Doc Assistants. And so before the show, we get to sit down with this group of students that comes every week and helps take questions and facilitate the show. But us, but mostly our guests, I mean, they get to know us well enough that they have a lot of questions for our guests, get to kind of talk about And you're right, everyone has a unique journey. There are some people that come on the show and they're like, I knew I was going to be a surgeon when I was four years old. Right. And some people (laughs) had an entire career before they decided they were going to go into medicine. And and it was um, a, a much later decision in life. For me, I was not one of the, when I was little, I actually thought I would be a veterinarian. That was always my answer to the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? I loved animals. Um... And I, I did always love science. So I like I majored in microbiology and biochemistry. I did all of that stuff. But I kind of thought that I would be a scientist. Mm-hmm. And only later during my undergraduate years did I realize like the lab was not for me. That was not a, a place that I could sort of be happy and content for my whole life. So I, I graduated college a little bit lost. Mm-hmm. I worked in a lab. I got a full-time job doing lab work, which I was qualified to do, but like wasn't my long-term plan. And then um, about a year after graduation, I decided I was going to take seriously um, studying for the MCAT and, and that kind of thing. And I actually waited tables for the better, like a year and a half before medical school for um, for my job full-time. Um which was fun and kind of gave me, you know, that's very different than working in a lab where you're, it's kind of quiet and you're, you spend a lot of time by yourself and um, compared to sort of learning how to talk to people, whoever walks in the door, which is something that I actually do have to do every day as a physician. So, um, so I, I was a little bit late to the game compared to others. Um, but yeah, it, it was good for me because I think I, I was very decisive, and when, when I was able to enter medical school and get started, I 
was very certain that that was what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know you've shared this story before, but you mentioned waiting tables. I understand you connected with Dr. Holm during that yes. time when you were waiting tables, right? That's that, exactly right. So that, I was right? waiting tables at Cubby's Sports Bar and Grill here in Brookings. Um, and I, I would struggle. It was after I had made the decision that I was, and maybe I'd already taken the MCAT. I can't mm-hmm. recall like what time of year this was, but Dr. Holm came in with his family. Um, and I, I was waiting on him. I think I served him a beer, a light beer and, and men, and, and he, I don't, I, I would be lying if I said, I remember how this conversation went, but I think it was something like, Hey Kelly, I hear you're applying to med school. Why don't you come shadow me? How's tomorrow? Or, you know, something sure. like that, something very immediate, which yes. was exactly how he was. Yes. Um, and then I was able to come in and shadow him in the hospital and clinic and, um, had a great experience and, I think was dragged onto the radio show. One of those shadowing experiences right? <laughs> as Bob remembers. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. So yeah, that's great. <laughs> I feel like that is, I mean, Dr. Holm is of course uh, his own unique, wonderful person, but I feel like it is common for physicians to take future physicians kind of under their wing and encourage them when you mm. hear about, Oh, you're interested in medicine? Let's talk about that. What can I do to help you? I feel like that is, do you see that too, Kelly? Uh, Absolutely. I think mentorship at all levels of Mm -hmm. your career from pre-medicine to making that big decision. And then, I mean, still, I feel like I still have mentors that I go to when I need advice in different aspects of what I do. And I think that is actually a big part of what you experience as a student and a trainee in medicine, and and most of us are happy to play that role for others when we get to a point in our careers where we can serve as mentors as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's great. Well, it's time for us to go to our first break. We thank you for listening to Prairie Doc Radio on KBRK and on our podcast. Call us now at 605 692 1430 with any medical questions you would like us to address. We will return following this informative message from the Avera Medical Group. Lung cancer is the leading cause of cancer death in the United States. Cigarette smoking is the number one cause of lung cancer, but it can also be caused by other forms of tobacco like pipes and cigars or breathing secondhand smoke or being exposed to asbestos or radon. We also are concerned with people who have a family history of lung cancer. Lung cancer symptoms may include coughing that gets worse and doesn't go away, chest pain, shortness of breath, wheezing, and coughing up blood. Other illnesses that can cause these these symptoms should be investigated as well. If you have any symptoms, talk to your doctor. For help to quit smoking, call 1-800-QUIT-NOW or visit cdc.gov slash quit. Your provider at the Avera Medical Group is a good resource to discuss lung symptoms. Call 697-9500 for an appointment. Welcome back to Prairie Doc Radio. I'm Laura Ellsworth, and Prairie Doc physician Kelly Evans is here to answer our medical questions. Give us a call with your questions at 605 692 1430 605-692-1430. Before the break, we were sharing that this week in the Prairie Doc world, we are focusing on the journey to becoming a doctor and what that looks like for different people and uh, how that all works. 
Dr. Evans, I enjoyed hearing how you kind of landed here to become mm-hmm. a physician. We're so glad you did. Uh, tell us about some of your current roles that you have teaching medical students. Yeah, so I I love medical education. It's a big part of um, what I do in addition to my clinical role here. So I, I see patients here in Brookings four days a week. Um, but that other day a week and then, you know, some evenings and smatterings of other time I spend doing um, things for the Stanford School of Medicine. Um, so I have some formal roles there and some informal roles there, um, which I, I really, really enjoy. Um, a lot of people, so I'm not the only person in our clinic in Brookings who will have students in the clinic, however. So mm-hmm. the one really unique thing about our state's medical school is that our students really go all over the state to do parts of their training. And so we often will have students, um, third and fourth year medical students here in Brookings doing some of their rural training. And a lot of our family physicians, our faculty with the medical school that that do some of that um, teaching and, and having students in clinic, which is wonderful because, you know, this, this they get to see a lot of different potential future careers um, as, as far as that goes. Um, so, you know, our, our patients here are no strangers to having students around, which is, I think, really a good thing overall. Um, the other things that I do at the medical school, um, so my, probably the, the biggest role I serve is I'm clerkship director for internal medicine. So I am a general internist. Internal medicine is one specialty within medicine, and we have a whole department at the medical school. And so I sort of oversee all of the education of our students that comes under the umbrella of internal medicine, which is pretty pretty large chunk of um, of what we do. So this, a lot of that's administrative. I work with people at our school to make sure that students are getting the experiences that they need in internal medicine. Um, again, mostly in the second half of their their medical school careers, which is where most of the clinical training occurs. Um, I do a lot of other things, though. I also I teach the cardiovascular physical diagnosis course. So this is to our second year um, medical students that are learning to listen to hearts and and um, uh, how how heart sounds should sound and how they shouldn't sound and and try to make um, get get more training in how to make a physical diagnosis and be ready to see patients when they do enter their clinical training. So I do that course every July. Um, gosh, some other thing. I serve on several committees at the medical school. I serve on, um, uh, I'm, I'm counselor of one of our honor societies at the medical school. Um, it, it gives me a lot of opportunity to work with students, which for me is really energizing. I mean, some people, some there's sometimes, if I'm being honest, Laura, that I say, why do I do all of this stuff to myself? Mm-hmm. I volunteer for the Prairie Doc and I do all this stuff at the medical school and it's kind of extra stuff. Right. I mean, I'm not, you know, and, and I already have a pretty demanding t- career. And sometimes there are some weeks where that takes away from family and leisure time. And I, I sometimes I, I wonder what I'm doing, but for real, it energizes me. And I think doing these things helps me stay optimistic and fresh and excited about the work that I do in the clinic. So, um, and you know, we have so many amazing medical students. You would not believe how amazing these people are. And it just, it makes me very hopeful for the future of what medicine will look like. Um, we see a lot of wonderful people come through here. So, yeah. Yeah. What is the size of a med school class now here in South Dakota? It's about 70, give or take. You know, some people choose 
70, I think they start with about 70. Not all of those are four-year students. We also have some combined degrees that we offer. So one of those are like MD, PhD. So these are students who not only get their four-year MD degree, but in the midst of that, they go back to the lab and get a PhD. So those are students who are in training for typically seven to eight years and and leave here with two degrees, Um, but around 70, which is, it's still as far as medical schools go is quite small um, in the scheme of things compared to other um, medical schools around the country. Right. Yeah. Gotcha. Mm Mm-hmm. You did medical school here. Here, yep. yes, okay. yep, in I South Dakota. Yep, so, yes. I did. Mm-hmm. What was the size of your class? Do you recall? It was fifty. So yes. they expanded the medical school class at some point. Yeah. Shortly thereafter, okay. I mean, I graduated med school in two thousand twelve. So it was probably, I don't know, between three and five years after that that they mm-hmm. added spots. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. And it is kind of one of those things where there are just spots, right? You decide the med school decides the number of students are going to take and then Yeah, I mean, there's I would say there's a lot more to it. We mm-hmm. we have challenges getting clinical training spots for all of those students. You okay. can imagine just to get we our students still need to have rigorous training and they need to have attendings in all of our different specialties. So to find that for 70 students around mm-hmm. the state is not necessarily a small task. Mm-hmm. Um so that's part of what goes into it, just the resources that we have. And so I, I I assume there was quite a lot of administrative background and Board of Regents work that went into that and all the costs of that and everything before making that decision. But yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. those third and fourth years, those rotations are about one month, right? Well, so it's different okay. than when I and Andrew were in medical yes. school. So generally speaking, this is unique um, to our university essentially all of our clinical sites now follow something that is similar to the old Yankton model. So um, if you you know that, for those of our our listeners who don't have any connection to medical training in South Dakota, they're a very unique model of medical training has come out of South Dakota. So um, Yankton and Dr. Lori Hansen, who's still on faculty at our School of Medicine, was basically really a pioneer in um, revamping how this medical training looks. So the traditional, you're right, the traditional third year of medical school and how I did it looked like you did somewhere between four and 10 weeks in every medical specialty, right? So you did six weeks of family medicine and 10 weeks of internal medicine and eight weeks of surgery and eight weeks of OB-GYN, psychiatry, neurology, um, and what am I, pediatrics. Okay. So you did all of these and it took about a year. So what we do now pretty much across all our campuses in the School of Medicine is what Yankton implemented years and years ago. And they were the first to do it, although Harvard School of Medicine will argue that they were the first to do it. <laughs> but really, this is Lori Hansen's baby. Um, and and now you will find these what we call longitudinal integrated curriculums all over the country because um, it has to do with adult learning theory and, and how we retain information better. But now most of our students will do all of those specialties, but they will do them intermittently and kind of at the same time throughout the entire year of their traditional third year of clinical training. So it looks a little different on, so our our main clinical campuses at our School of Medicine are Sioux Falls, Rapid City, and Yankton. And just because of how those places are set up, the actual structure of those looks a little different on each campus. But so a student might come to my clinic in internal medicine on Mondays, and then Tuesday mornings they might be in pediatrics, and Tuesday afternoons they might be in 
their OBGYN clinic. And then maybe they have a half a day of sort of self-directed learning time on Thursdays. and But they're doing all of it. And then they go to the operating room with their surgery attending on Thursday afternoons or so, you know, some some version of that where everything kind of is intermingled through the weeks, but they're getting all of those specialties all year long. And when you talk about coordinating kind of an individual learning plan for 70 medical students right. per it's bonkers. Year. It yeah, takes I a lot of work to, to, to make it just to make the schedules work. Yeah. Right? yeah. And to make mm-hmm. it a high quality right. experience for everyone. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so it, it is challenging and that has you know, been revamped to try and optimize how that looks on the different campuses over the years. But um, overall, our students do really well. They perform well on the exams that they need to perform on. They match into great residencies. So um, overall, it goes well. And like I said, around the country, you, you have seen these LICs pop up at other, you know, big and renowned medical schools now, um, just because there's good data that for how adults learn. It's probably better to do it that way than to try and, you know, immerse yourself for two months and one specialty and then you don't do it for 10 months right you know yeah that makes sense Mm -hmm. yeah excellent well it's time for us to go to our next break we thank you for listening to prairie doc radio on kbrk and on our podcast call us now with your questions at 605-692-1430 605-692-1430 with any medical questions you would like us to address Prairie Doc programs are available as a podcast. Just look for Prairie Doc wherever you find your podcast. Today's program will be added to the podcast soon. We will return following this informative message from the Avera Medical Group. Hospice is medical care designed to maximize comfort and quality of life for patients facing terminal illnesses. Hospice provides pain management, emotional support, help with family care, and spiritual care to the patient and their family when a cure is not possible. Brookings Health System employs a caring team of professionals and volunteers sensitive to the changing needs of patients and family members during this difficult time. To find out more about hospice in the Brookings, South Dakota area, call 696-9000 or talk with your primary care provider provider at the Avera Medical Group Brookings, 697-9500. Welcome back to Prairie Doc Radio. I'm Laura Ellsworth and Prairie Doc physician Kelly Evans is here to answer our medical questions. Give us a call with your questions at 605-692-1430. 605-692-1430. We're talking today about the journey to becoming a doctor and the different steps and requirements to make that happen. Uh, Dr. Evans, you shared earlier about your your journey and how a lot of that started with studying for an MCAT. Uh, so let's talk about um, the different steps. And um, we begin with our four-year degree yeah. in college, right. which can be in anything, correct? <laughs> yeah. It does not need to be in the sciences. Right. right. We just need that undergraduate degree. Yeah. And, and so there are sort of prerequisites. With, excuse me, prerequisites at most medical schools for certain sort of bare minimum background science requirements. So mm-hmm. you, you know, but I, I would agree that we see students in medical school that were 
English literature majors or, you know, Spanish majors or, you know, there are plenty of students who might have a liberal arts degree that was not, you know, a a degree, a bachelor's in science um, that could get come into medical school and they bring wonderful background and, you know, because if we're being real, the practice of medicine is a lot of humanities too. So, um, so a lot of students do come in with a bachelor's degree in some science, but not all of them. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I guess my goal, my goal here is to help any of our listeners, like medical training is a unique thing. And if you haven't had a family member or loved one go through it, it's really, it, most people don't really understand how this goes, right? So maybe if you have a, if you have a niece or a grandson or someone who is thinking about or going through medical training, hopefully this will help you understand what they go through a little bit better. So you're right. So an an undergrad degree is, is required, a four-year degree. And then there are some of these other requirements. So you mentioned the MCAT, which is basically a standardized exam that everyone in the country would take that yields a score and ultimately is part of the application process for medical school. So I can't speak a lot to what the MCAT looks like because it's actually changed really drastically since I took it, mm-hmm. probably for the better. I mean, I think when I took it, there a quarter of the exam was like physics and, you know, some things that aren't necessarily super relevant to what turns out a good physician, right? Sure. Which mm-hmm. I think we are rethinking a lot of how, how we administer tests and stuff in, in general mm-hmm. in society, but also right. um, in, in medicine is no different. So anyways, but there is an MCAT. Mm-hmm. You will have to study and try to perform well on that. Um, but the other part of your application is all of your undergraduate grades and letters of recommendation and what kind of service and volunteerism uh-huh. and research and all of these things that you've done. And everyone's application will look different and unique. Um and be presented to whatever application committee at various med schools that mm-hmm. people will apply to. Okay, so that's that's step one. So and first, then you apply. You apply. And, then, and, you, and you wait. It, it, yep, you, it, and, and if you get in, then you're in and great. And you can enroll in medical school, which generally kind of follows an academic year similar to an undergraduate university, though um, some of that gets a little bit different without the breaks and stuff as you get further on in. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you enter medical school. This is also a four-year process, though I mentioned exceptions for people who are getting dual degrees and might be there a little bit longer. Most medical schools traditionally, the first two years is mostly in the classroom. So you're learning sciences, you're in an anatomy lab, you're taking a lot of tests, you're doing a lot of studying on books and stuff. Though, again, this has evolved. We're trying to teach people to be active learners. And so it's a lot less sitting in a lecture hall than it was even when I was a medical student 10 to 15 years ago. But to make a long story short, you're getting some of, a, a lot of that background science knowledge. So biochemistry, human anatomy, physiology, pharmacology, microbiology, all of these things that you really, you do need a good knowledge base in to sort of move on to the various disciplines. And then you start learning physiology of the body system. So you'll have a unit on neurology and a unit on gastroenterology and and learning about all the diseases, the things that can go wrong, what you do about those things that go wrong, et cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of the first two years of medical school. Though that's been a little bit shortened in our in our medical school, we've tried to cram that into closer to a year and a half, 18 months or a little bit more so that we can start clinical training earlier. Mm -hmm. Okay, so then the second half of medical school is the bulk clinical training. So we talked about the traditional third year 
um, being sort of getting a, a base in all of the sort of more general medical specialties, family medicine, internal medicine, pediatric surgery, OBGYN, psychiatry, et cetera. Um, and, and that can look a little different school to school, but everyone has that. And then the fourth year, you maybe get to delve, it's more elective time. You delve into a little bit of like, okay, what what specialty do I want to do? And you can kind of spend time doing electives that serve that education better, prepare you for the next step, which is residency. Mm-hmm. Okay. So four years in, you're going to graduate from medical school. But wait, there's like this. No, if you graduate medical school, you cannot practice medicine. You're not done. You know, like that, that is not good enough. <laughs> um, so, so at some point, so this is more like, at the beginning of the fourth year is when we start applying for residency. Okay. okay, so residency is your postgraduate training. So you will have an MD or you know a DO or whatever degree behind your name when you do residency. But again, you cannot practice independently yet. Mm-hmm. Um, you cannot sit for your boards in your specialty yet. So applying for residency is something that every fourth year medical student will be. That's their life, for, mm-hmm. and, and it's a pretty stressful time in life, quite honestly. So ultimately, you choose what specialty you want to apply to. And there's a lot. So I mentioned sort of the core specialties, but residency can also occur in some more subspecialties. So like their neurosurgery has its own residency programs. Dermatology has its own residency programs, um, so on and so forth. You could, you could go on. Ophthalmology is, is one that maybe people don't think of. So you choose your specialty, you apply to residencies across the country for most people in the fall, um, and then you you do interviews. So I mean, you gotta you gotta come up with a whole application, not unlike the application for medical school. Okay, what have you been doing the last four years besides just getting good grades and what passing makes your exams? You and, yep, like what 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 sets you apart? Right. Um, getting more letters of recommendation, all that stuff. And then there's sort of an interview season for residency. And that, again, looks different for everybody. It depends on kind of what specialty you're applying in and and that kind of thing. That pre-COVID was done mostly in person. So Mm -hmm. when I applied for residency, I flew all over the country and went to these sites in a suit and sat down and got interviewed in person and got tours of places. Now it's almost all virtual. And that was kind of by force, you know, a few years ago. But most places have kept it mostly virtual, which... Honestly, like I really had fun traveling to right. places to interview for residency, but it was expensive. Laura, yeah. I mean, yeah. you spent thousands of dollars that mm-hmm. you didn't have, right? Like mm-hmm. I don't make money as a medical student. I'm right. paying for medical school and living on student loans. So it's probably a good thing for the most part that that has been taken out of it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then we, we can't finish this conversation without talking about the match, yes. which is like um, the match is a mystery to anyone who hasn't gone through it. And it's still a mystery to some of us who have gone through it. So the match is something that was set up decades ago to try and sort of optimize fairness to match residency slots, which of which there are a finite number of residency slots around the country, right, and given specialties to graduating medical students that could fill those slots for their for their training. And so as as the student, what you do when you come to the end of your interview season is you submit a rank list. And so your rank list will be basically it's sort of a prioritized list. My first choice would be program A, my second choice would be program B, and so on and so forth. And again, depending on your specific situation, you might list six programs or you might list 20 or 30 programs, just depending on, on kind of your needs. 
and then the program. So I, I, as somewhat, I was able to participate on this from the other side when I was a chief resident in Colorado. The programs who have interviewed, right, hundreds of applicants at least, depending on the size of their program, also submit a rank list. Mm -hmm. But their rank list is hundreds of people long, right? Mm -hmm. But they, it's still sort of a prioritized list. So that happens in you know, several thousand programs throughout the country and who knows how many thousands of medical students. And then a computer sorts out how, where everybody's going to go. Yes. But, and then there's this big dramatic match day in which you find out where you're going. Everybody across the country finds out where they're going for the next three to seven years, depending on your program mm -hmm. on match day. Mm -hmm. And it's exciting, but it's kind of scary, right? Like, it absolutely I is. Think, I think one thing that maybe the general public doesn't know is how little control over one's fate you have as a medical trainee. And mm -hmm. this is like a great example of that, right? Like, mm -hmm. I don't get to turn down the job once I match. Like, that is where I'm going, or I don't get to practice medicine. Mm -hmm. So... And your spouse or family right. goes with you. Yep, that's how this works. So <laughs> right. it's like it's it's um so it's it's a very unique situation. I can't think of a correlate in any other sort of job training which in which something like this occurs. But yes, that's kind of part of it. So then you go to residency, and so residency, like I said, the shortest would be three years. I did a three year residency in internal medicine. Some residencies are much longer, especially our surgical subspecialties. And that's basically learning on the job. So you're working. Everyone's heard about the residency work hour restrictions. Now we are we're restricted to at least average 80 hour work week. So sometimes as a resident, you might work a 100 hour work week, but it better not be every week or mm -hmm. your program will get dinged for that. But it is a ton of work. And, you know, everyone should know what they're in for if you're the family member of someone in residency. Again, very little control over sort of your day-to-day -day life. Mm -hmm. um, but it's something that you have to do to learn how to do your job. It's just that that's, that's the truth of the matter. Put the time in. You got to put the time yeah, in. Yeah, absolutely. And then at the end of that, then you can take your boards. Then and you then can you can go, practice medicine. Practice medicine and get a job. <laughs> right. But some people choose to go on and do more training. So yes. like people that I did residency with finished their three years of internal medicine and went on to do four years of fellowship in cardiology or gastroenterology or what have you. So yeah, it is. I, I like to call it a delayed adolescence. You know, <laughs> most of us are well into our 30s before we get to sit and actually have a real, our first quote, real job. Yeah, it is quite the journey. That's for it sure. Is. I'm really grateful there are the, so Andrew and I started dating early on in college before he decided to become a doctor. Mm -hmm. So I was along on this journey um, as uh, the girlfriend and then the spouse. Yeah. We got married right after college going into med school. So we were married through med school and residency and and all of that. But I'm grateful for like the milestones. And you really have those to kind of stop and celebrate along mm -hmm. the way. You know, getting into med school obviously is a big celebration. Mm -hmm. They have a white coat ceremony that you invite your family to as you start med school. Like, okay, here we go. We're in this. And, you know, just those different things along the way. I remember in residency, um, I think we were about six months still away from graduation, and I was just kind of tired of not seeing my husband and having a baby at home with me. And so I went out and bought a dress for graduation. I was like, it's coming. So I'm going to go buy this dress for his residency graduation. It will come, you know. Um, but there are so many great things about the journey and the people we met along the yeah. way. And, um, and then so fun once we landed in Brookings and he started practicing medicine and mm -hmm. loving it. Yeah. And it's just like, okay, yeah. 
that that was but all it is worth hard it. i mean if so. you've got someone in in your life that's it any step of the way like empathize acknowledge that it's a it's a lot it's hard it's a huge sacrifice mm-hmm. i mean we we delay a lot of our life you know mm-hmm. we right. delay buying a house right. we del- a lot of us delay having children and and having families because it's just it's difficult mm-hmm. um so but you're right so many wonderful people yeah mm-hmm. a worthwhile journey to go on yes if, if it's your calling to choose yeah. that so <laughs> wonderful well thanks for this great information today dr evans fun to kind of reminisce on that process it is. And, and we probably could have done it for an hour but i guess yeah. we can't do that yes, yes. <laughs> well please be sure to tune in to south dakota public broadcasting television tomorrow night on thursday march 30th to learn more about a journey to become a doctor we have a great show with Um, Provost Dennis Hedge and being joined by Dr. Tim Ridgway, the Dean of the School of Medicine, and Dr. Nancy Van Prusum from Avera Medical Group Millbank, uh, who helps lead the farm program for Mm. Millbanks. So tune in tomorrow night on SDPB. Please follow the Prairie Doc on Facebook and YouTube for free and easy access to the entire Prairie Doc library. Visit www.prairiedoc.org. My thanks to Dr. Kelly Evans for joining us today. And as Dr. Home would say, stay healthy out there, people.